0: listening to audio from Oasis Church in Winter Haven, Florida. For more information about Oasis Church, please visit our website at www.oasischurchwh.org. And thanks so much for listening.
1: Been with us. We've been doing a uh, sort of a lazy walk through uh, Acts for the summer. We said we're going to start at the beginning and we'll see how far we get. We'll go as far as we can go and then we'll stop. And at the beginning of next summer, we'll jump back into the book of Acts. So we're still in chapter number one. That ought to tell you a little bit. Uh, June is over. This is the last day. So that should tell you a little bit about the lazy pace at which we're going at it. But you will receive power, Jesus said. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. In all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That is the hub around which the entire book of Acts rotates. The fact that Jesus is ascending, his work on earth is done. He has been crucified, buried, now risen, has been with the the disciples and those that have been around him for a period of about 40 days to this point. And now he is ascending back up to the Father. He had made a promise earlier to these disciples and said, I'm going, away But when I go away, I'm going to send you another comforter who will be with you in a similar yet different way in which I am with you. I am with you spatially. I am here with you traveling on foot, limited to where I can be at any given point, but God will send another comforter. And we know that person is the Holy Spirit who can be with you all in the same way. And the way Jesus has described just now is a way of power, a way of power like that none of them had ever experienced before. Only the Kings, only the prophets, those that had been allowed to operate under the power of the Holy Spirit for a temporary time had experienced even somewhat of what we were going to be promised and given. He says, you're going to receive power and you are going to be my witnesses here in Jerusalem, in the surrounding area of Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. When he had said these things, verse number nine, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. While they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, "'Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven?' This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven, ladies and gentlemen. Let me tell you, he's not come back yet in that same way in the clouds, visible to those who are his followers. And so that is a a reminder to us that the best is yet to come. He is coming back. He will receive his own unto himself. We will go to be with him wherever he is. That victory is still yet to be experienced by us, even though it has been paid for and given. Guaranteed through the resurrection, Jesus is coming back. It could be today, and it's going to look very much like what they saw him leave like. So that's still on the horizon. That is our hope as followers of Jesus Christ, and that is the message that we are to communicate. That one who came from the Father, was crucified in our place for our sin, was raised again, and guaranteed that that sacrifice was accepted and a way has been made open for sinners like you and me to know God through the price that's been paid through Jesus Christ. That'd be a great place for a amen. Okay, chapter number one, verse number 12. This is where we're going to really start from. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, the, je- the zealot, and Judas, the son of James. All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Verse number 15, Andy, let's keep going. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of the persons was in all about 120 And he said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus, for he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man acquired a field, talking about Judas, this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So that field was called in their own language, Akedama, which is field of blood. And we pick up in verse 20 where Peter's talking again. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the lord jesus went in and out among us beginning with the baptism of john until the day he was taken up from us one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection and they put forward two: joseph called barsabbas who was also called justice and matthias And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles father we ask that you'll take your word today and instruct us give us a a confident assurance that we are hearing from you and give us the courage to be obedient to whatever you say first in jesus name we pray and everybody said okay we're going to look at this passage here that, that just seems like a informational piece about what happened after jesus ascended into the heavens after his earthly ministry was complete and in fact That's exactly what we have. We see Luke in the book of Acts giving us a record of the first beginnings, or if you will, the the, the first parts of the new organization that began, we know of, as the church. And some of its leaders and how it progressed from Jerusalem to Judea and then Samaria and to the ends of the earth, he shows us this historical account. And much of what we'll find in Acts is what would be called... Descriptive. Elements that we will find. Just Luke telling the story to the best of his ability so that his friend, Theophilus, whoever that individual was, probably a Roman official, who had first written the gospel about Jesus to, and now he's writing the second volume of his work, The Acts of the Apostles, as the continuation of Jesus' work. He's writing these things to help Theophilus understand just exactly what God was doing through these called Apostles. So much of what we're going to find in the book of Acts is just a description of what happened. And when we look at things that are descriptive, we've got to be careful that we don't always say what they did we must do or what happened here that must be. We've got to be careful and understand what Luke was trying to show Theophilus and those that would read behind him. So that's going to be our goal today as we look at just what happened and how God is moving. We're going to try to pull from that. How are we to take that and apply it to our life today in 2019? 19, because that is our goal. So the first thing we want to try to do is just unpack what we're reading. And what I see here is three movements. I see first... This uh, this grouping of of a, a grouping of people returning from one place to another. I just see them coming and and reestablishing themselves in a location where they're going to wait. And then I see a sermon that was preached, a little mini sermonette, if you will, that was preached by uh, the one who took on the role of of kind of the the head of this band. He stood and he proclaimed what he felt like God was leading. And then lastly, we're going to see a choice that we believe. Jesus himself actually made so a journey of return a sermon that was preached and a choice that was made first the uh, the return journey we see it in verse 12 then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet which is near Jerusalem a Sabbath day's journey Away, This Mount of Olives, I had an opportunity to stand on the eastern edge of the city of Jerusalem uh, back a couple of years, and, and I stood there on what is the Mount of Olives. Now, it is not a mount full of olive trees anymore. In fact, it is a, uh, it is a slope where you're going to find a graveyard. I mean hundreds of, of sepulchers on top of the ground, these tomb-like uh, apparatus where folks are buried, and it goes all the way down and even up the other side as you see the old city wall of Jerusalem. But it is on the eastern side, and it faces the eastern gate that Jesus, through prophecy, is supposed to come through when he sets up his kingdom. And so I've had an opportunity to stand there. The Scripture tells us just probably on the other side of this mount, just across the ridge, it's it's more like a hill, not a mountain, but across the ridge on the other side would have been the way down to Bethany. And it seems as though that's where Jesus was with his followers, his apostles, disciples, those who were with him when he ascended into glory. It says that it's uh, about a Sabbath day's journey. He's like, well, how far is that? Well, a Sabbath day's journey was about 2,000 feet that you could travel on the Sabbath. You go, how in the world did they come up with that? Well, let me give you a little bit of history. In Exodus chapter number 16, verse 29, God gives a command to his people that the Sabbath day is supposed to be a holy day. And one of the things that he says is that on the Sabbath day, you're to remain in your place, meaning your home, your dwelling place. Don't go on business, don't go out into the fields to do work, but stay in your home, stay with your family, rest, celebrate this day and set it aside as a holy day for you to focus your attention on me and the promises that I have made. To you. Well, the religious leaders of that day were, were always wondering, well, well, how far is too far? How close is too close? And, and so they would take and interpret scripture. And the religious, the rabbis, the religious leaders had interpreted the, the scripture in Exodus saying, stay in your place with what Numbers chapter number 35, verse 5 says. It talks about, this particular verse talks about the, uh, the land that was given to the Levite tribe. And it was to be set, their land, their allotment of the, of the promised land was supposed to be within the t- first 2,000 feet of the, of the city edge. And so they figured well, if the Levites lived in that first 2,000 feet away from the city, and they had to get up and go lead the worship on the Sabbath day and do the, 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 the temple, uh, the, the activities that had to go on in the temple or in the tabernacle at that time then they would at least have to be able to travel that 2,000 feet. So that's how far we must go. And so they interpreted a Sabbath day's journey is about a half a mile. That's as far as you can travel. Luke is helping Theophilus understand how far it was they were away from Jerusalem. About a half a mile, about as far as you can travel on a Sabbath day. And it says, and when they left there, they returned and they entered into the upper room. Well, now this may have been, we would like to think in our own mind that the upper room that they celebrated the Passover in, when Jesus took the bread and he broke it and he took the cup and he said, eat, drink, this is my body broken. This is my blood poured out for you. We'd love to think that these disciples were in that upper room. Well... Maybe they were, but it's been 40 days since the events of the resurrection, the crucifixion and resurrection. So chances are great. This could be any upper room. The bottom line is in Jerusalem in this time, the larger rooms of the house would be on the second floor. The smaller rooms in the bottom would have the walls that would, that would hold up the weight so that they could entertain a larger room on the second floor. So many of the houses in Jerusalem would have had this upper room. This is where they went to. They went from being gathered on the hillside, watching Jesus go, hearing the promises, hearing the instructions of these two in white, and now they've traveled back to where they were staying in this upper room somewhere in Jerusalem. Now, notice who Luke mentions in verse number 13. When they had entered, they went into the upper room where they were staying. And he names some people. He names Peter. He names John and James, the the sons of thunder. He names Andrew, which is Peter's brother. Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas, the son of James, which also in a couple of the Gospels, this Judas, the son of James, was named as Thaddeus. Luke makes it very clear that these that were chosen by Jesus were all there. But you'll notice there's one name missing. The name of that one is Judas Iscariot, who had traveled with them for three and a half years and then betrayed the Lord and then killed himself in, 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 in regret, I think, but not in repentance. And so Luke makes it very clear to Theophilus, all of the apostles that have been with Jesus by his choice were all there. But it's not just them. Because I think what Luke is doing is he's building the foundation of this new organization, this new organism, if you will, the church. And it's going to be built on the testimony of those that God has chosen, those that have witnessed and seen his actions, not the least of which is his death and resurrection. So all of the apostles are there, Theophilus, but not just them. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women. Now in this time, the women of society had no rights whatsoever. They couldn't even testify in court. Yet Luke is saying in this upper room, waiting the instruction or the giving of the Holy Spirit, you see the apostles that Jesus chose, these eyewitnesses, and also those women who were there who were going to be instrumental in this thing called the church. And not only the women, but the mother of Jesus. And in the last part of verse 14, notice what he said and his brothers earlier in the gospel accounts while jesus is doing his ministry while he is moving from place to place preaching and proclaiming the kingdom doing miracles putting himself out there as legitimately messiah we see a couple of accounts where mary and her other children come to jesus In an attempt to try to stop this craziness that he's doing. To try to convince him, will you please come back home? Because what you're doing is setting yourself up against the authorities of our nation. Who are connected to the authorities in Rome. And Jesus, if you keep doing this, they're going to kill you. Please, will you stop this madness and come home? What was underlying that desire to get Jesus to come home? The fact that none of his siblings believed he was who he was saying that he was. Will you please stop this and come home? But Luke makes it very clear in this account that the apostles were there waiting. The women were there waiting. Jesus' mama was there waiting. And guess who else was there? Jesus' own siblings. This word brothers, it's inclusive of not just the male, but also the, the feminine, the female. So it would be uh, like saying his brothers and sisters were there. The apostles that have seen that he chose, and they were witnesses. The women that no one else is willing to listen to. But they're important to this organization that God's going to start, this organism that God's going to give birth to. And not only that, those that, that were convinced he was crazy are there as well. His own brothers and sisters of which are included James and Jude, the authors of the New Testament letters given to their name. Not only that, I'll sneak down into verse number 15 where it says the company of persons was in all about a hundred and twenty. So, from that place on the hillside on the Mount of Olivet, they come over and they find themselves in this upper room about 120 strong. Now, on a, a good solid day at Oasis Church, we've been running about 150, 100, and you know, somewhere 150, 135, somewhere in that neighborhood. So, just imagine this number. This is about how many folks were in that upper room. I would venture to say that room was not as big as this one. And I'm confident that there was no such thing as climate control until the advent of electricity. And deodorant had probably not made its way onto the scene either. So about 120 of us, if you would imagine... Packed in a greyhound with a few uh, windows open. That's probably about what they were experiencing. Why in the world would they be doing that? With no doubt, kids and 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 wh- why? Because the one they had just saw said to wait. So they made their journey, and they were together in this place. So we see their return. Now we see this sermon. Peter, who's been notorious for being the first one to speak, but also the first one to put his foot in his mouth. I have that problem, y'all. I know, listen, some of y'all have such a hard time believing that, and I know, and I I appreciate uh, your grace in that, but I'm so quick to speak. I mean, there's not a subject that I don't have an opinion on, and I think pretty highly of my opinion. In fact, I'll try to convince you that it's the right one, And there have been times in my life that that quick-to-speak has ended up putting me in trouble where I've had to turn around and go, wow, I said that. I said that way too fast. And I said that way too arrogantly. And I'm sorry. I need to, I need to recount that. I need to recant and say, I don't know what I'm talking about. I've had to do that. Peter had the same problem. He was the first to step up. And one of the most memorable ways that he stepped up was not with his tongue, but was with his sword when they were trying to take Jesus. And he lops off the ear of one of the servants of the, of the, priestly guard and Jesus picks up the ear and kind of turns and I think looks at Peter like you dummy and puts the ear back on and says put the sword down it's not time for that so Peter was notorious for stepping up and speaking but I think probably for the very first time, Peter was taking on a role that God intended for him to take on—a role of of not authority but of leadership. You, you remember last week when we talked about Jesus on the on the side of the of the lake there with Peter, who had betrayed, uh, had had denied Jesus three times, and then Jesus was sitting with him on the shore, and he asked him three questions. He says. Peter, do you, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter's like, yes, I love you. Yes, I love you, Lord. You know all things. You know I love you. And Jesus, what did he say? He said, he said, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus had a plan for Peter. It involved leadership. It it, it involved taking his strength and putting it under the control of the Holy Spirit. And even though this is days before the Holy Spirit's coming, I think Peter sitting there with them just knew if anybody was going to address these things, it was going to have to be him because they were all probably waiting on him to speak, which is what he normally did. So the Bible says... In those days, somewhere between day 40 and day 50, which we're gonna talk about in chapter number two, Peter stood up and Peter had some things to say. Verse 16, Peter said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled when the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. This is astounding. These Galileans who seem to not get anything that Jesus was talking about when he would reference Old Testament passages, this Peter is now standing up and saying, Fellas, ladies, we need to talk about something. And it has to do with the one of our ranks that's no longer here. You know his name, his name's Judas. But, but let me help you because I think I understand something. I think what Judas did, though he's responsible for it and though it doesn't take him off the hook, I think what Judas did was actually something that had to happen. Because I think the psalmist David, in writing as king in the Psalms, I actually think he was writing about something in his life that was going to have a fulfillment in the ultimate king's life. And he's going to mention a couple of two psalms here in just a second. And you go, well, how is it that Peter understands this now? Well, we don't know. Is it possible that Jesus had spent the last 40 days showing them different connections between him and the Old Testament? I think so. In fact, I think in the in the book of Luke where it talks about Jesus uh, interacting with the disciples on the road to Emmaus when they were finished speaking with him and just before he left, he began to explain to them all of those things in the Old Testament that had to do with him. So I'm sure that their understanding is being enlightened and maybe Jesus has taught them. And Peter goes, guys, look, I, I, I think we need to do something because I believe what Judas did was spoken about, not by David who knew what he was writing about, but I think the Holy Spirit was talking through David when David wrote about some exchanges between him and his enemies, And then Luke makes a little aside. He steps out of character and he goes, okay, Theophilus, let let me explain to you. Now, Peter's about to say some things, but let me explain to you what has happened. And that's what we find right here in verse number 18, where he says, this is Luke. This is Luke talking. This is not Peter. This is Luke. Now, this man, Judas, acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. Okay, What, what are we talking about? This man, Judas had made a deal with the chief priests and the Pharisees and the scribes to bring Jesus into their hands. How many of you remember how much Judas was paid in order to do that? It was 30 pieces of silver, right? 30 pieces of silver was given for a transaction between the priests and Judas to bring Jesus to a location where they could successfully arrest him without worrying about the crowds being around. So 30 pieces, this reward of his wickedness was Judas's 30 pieces of silver. He says, this man acquired a field. Now, in Matthew's gospel, chapter number 27, in verses 3 through 10, you can read that on your own. Matthew gives the account of this transaction involving a field. Here's what Matthew says. Matthew says, Judas once he realized what he had done, turning an innocent man over to the mob, he regretted what he did. I don't think he repented, but he regretted it. And the Bible says in Matthew 27, that Judas went to the, to the priests and said, here, I've done a bad thing. I want to give you your money back. This was wrong for me to do. And the priests were like, we don't want your money. That's blood money, man. We've paid you. You've done your deal. You deal with it yourself. We don't want the money back. And Matthew says that as Judas is running away that he slings the money back into the temple at the priest's. You go well, well. What then does Luke mean when he says that this man acquired a field? Well, in Matthew it says that the priest, because they didn't want their hands dirty with this money, they took that money and they bought a field with it that was going to be set aside for some purpose. And in Matthew it talks about that field being called Akeldama in the Hebrew language, meaning field of blood. So in Matthew you've got the priest buying it. It looks like. Like in Luke, he's saying that Judas bought it. But I think the way to understand it is the priest bought this field in Judas's name because they didn't want to be connected to it. And it was going to be a place known as the field of blood. You say, why was it called the field of blood? Number one, because it was bought with money, paid to buy an innocent man's execution. And number two, Luke says... In his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. Now, I know this is kind of gross, but it is what it says. The book of Matthew says that Judas throws the money, he runs out, and he hangs himself. Now, Luke is telling us that he hung himself... And either the rope was not strong enough to hold him or the limb was not strong enough to hold him. But the bottom line is when a body is deceased and it is out cooking in the hot Israeli sun, it begins to bloat, to expand. And if you will, when the rope broke. What happened to Judas? He fell down onto the ground. And what happened to him? Well, what Luke said happened to him, happened to him. So this place was known as the field of blood. And most scholars understand that this was a place where foreigners and and folks that, that had no family to bury them, it was where their bodies were taken and buried or tossed. You say, why in the world are you telling us all this? Look what Peter says. Here's what he says, verse number 20. Now we're back to Peter again. He says, for it is written in the book of Psalms, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. In Psalm chapter number 69, which this verse is taken from, David is writing a poem, if you will, a a, a psalm of of misery because his foes are after him. His enemies have come after him. And and Jesus is saying, God, here's what I want you to do to my enemies. I want you to wipe them out. I want you to make where they dwell a wasteland where no one will be. And I, I want you to remove them from their place. Where was Judas's place? Based on the records in Jerusalem, this field that was purchased in his name. And Peter's like, I'm kind of thinking what I'm seeing in Psalms is it was... So that must mean that what Judas did, as vile as it was was foreshadowed and and here we're seeing it enacted and and Judas has been he's been wasted away and his place is now desolate no one wants to have it because of the money that it took to buy it and because of the 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 thing that happened on it and now it's going to be a wasteland and everybody's talking about it and everybody's calling it a field of blood and I mean, it looks like that's what was happening and now it's a fulfillment of what David would experience. And not only that, he says, and then there's the other Psalm, 109, in verse number 8, where David, as he's again talking about a a foe, an enemy that is coming after him. We We know who that enemy was. Most of the time was Saul and others of the time it could have been Absalom, his son. But at any rate, one of those enemies of David, he says... God, here's what I want you to do. I want you to let another take his office. Move him out of the way and let someone else take his place. And Peter's going, y'all, listen, I I think we need to do something here because now... I think the Holy Spirit was speaking through David when he's talking about his enemy, that, that he wanted to become a waste and a, and a desolate place, and it is, and, and then he talks about another replacing him. And, and hey, do y'all remember what Jesus said in Matthew? Well, it wasn't Matthew 19 at the time, but do y'all remember what Jesus said when he said that, that when he comes back, that the 12 of us are gonna reign on 12 thrones with him? And me, Andrew, James, John, Bartholomew, there's only 11 of us guys. You, you know what I think? I think we should look to replacing Judas on the basis of what God has said and what Jesus has told us is to gonna come about. Here's what I think we need to do. I think we need to pick some candidates at least two of them and I think we need to replace Judas but here's what's got to happen he says they need to be someone in verse number 21 they need to be someone who's accompanied us during the whole time of Jesus ministry why because we're going to be witnesses and it needs to be somebody who's seen what we've seen and heard what we've heard and not only that in verse number 22 he says they really need to have been with us from the time Jesus was baptized all the way until the time of his resurrection we need to put someone in this place so that he can take the place of the one who's abandoned his place and it needs to be someone who's seen and heard everything we've seen and heard so that we'll be a body of integrity again having 12 of us that Jesus has chosen guys that's what I think we need to do they took two guys they put two forward verse number 23 Joseph called Barsabbas, which is uh, it's a uh, it would be translated son of the Sabbath, who is also called by his Roman name Justus and Matthias. So they're looking around at the 120 folks that are here, and they're looking around. And they're like, "Okay, uh, how many of you? How many of you were at the baptism when Jesus was baptized?" And I would imagine a few of them probably raised their hand. Like, uh, "Okay, anybody else? They, you've been with us. Y'all, y'all heard the voice." And all, "Okay, cool." So if you guys keep your hands up. How many of y'all have been with us the whole time? You uh, know, not you, Joe. I remember you, you left for a little while, you went home and then you came back. How many, and I'm sure some of them put their hands down and the only two with, with the hands were still up. They were like, yeah, Joseph and, uh, and Matthias, y'all been here the whole time, haven't you? Y'all were with us and you've seen everything. You've heard everything we've heard. Okay, you, you, guys, you guys will count. So they pull them forward and they go, look, these are the only two fellas that have been with us the whole time. They saw him ascend. They're here with us now. We've got two candidates. And guys, I think we need to replace Judas. That was the extent of Peter's sermon. And then we see in verse number 24, Jesus's choice. Notice what they said. And they prayed and said, you, Lord. Now, notice that they didn't pray to God the Father. I believe that what we're seeing right here is them praying to the Jesus they had just watched ascent. You know, what did Jesus already tell them? He's like, I want you to go and I want you to make disciples and I want you to baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit and, and I want you to teach them everything I command you and I will be with you always, even to the end of the age. And then they've watched him go. And I believe what they're doing is they're like, okay, Jesus. You're gone, but we believe that you are Messiah. And we know that God hears us and you're with Him. So, Lord. Here's what we need you to do. We think we're doing the right thing to the best of our ability. We, we recognize that there's some going on in the Old Testament dealing with, with what happened with Judas. And we think that you want us to have 12. So now, Lord, here's what we need you to do. You know the hearts of all. We've got Joseph. We've got Matthias. These guys have been with us. But you know their hearts. You know what's going on in their life. Show which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and the apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. In John chapter 15, verse 16, Jesus told these 12 disciples minus one, guys, you've not chosen me. I've chosen you. And so now they're on their face, 120 strong going, Lord, Lord, uh the best we know how We're, we're we're just wanting to be obedient we're waiting but but we think this is what we need to do now we got these two guys here lord we we don't want to pick them we don't know their hearts we need you to pick them and we want your will to be accomplished verse number 26 says something a little bizarre it says and they cast lots for them They cast, here's what they did. They probably had a dice or a rock that they either put uh, an inscription signifying Joseph and on the other one an inscription signifying Matthias and they put them probably in a bag where they shook them up. These dice, if you will. And you're like, wait a minute. These are followers of Jesus, yeah, and and they put the dice in the bag or the box and, and either they dumped out the bag or the box and watched which fell out first or they did kind of like I did in Family Bible Time with the tickets. I just stuck my hand down in the, in the bag and I, I reached around and I pulled out the first one. They cast lots. And you're like, why in the world would they do that? Well, here's why. Jesus wasn't there. Jesus wasn't talking they weren't hearing him speak but there was a tradition in Israel of Urim and Thummim those were two dice that the high priest was required to keep within his breastplate under God's instructions and there were times in the Old Testament where God's will needed to be discerned, de- de- determined or, or de- uh, defined. And, the, whole, and the, the high priest would at various times have to take out the holy dice. And he would let God decide through the dice what his will was. Now, can God cause the right rock to fall out of the bag? Of course he can. Did he command the Old Testament Israelites at times to do that? Of course he did. Was the Holy Spirit there to guide them yet? No. So how are we going to figure it out? Guys, we got to pull out the dice. And to the best of their ability, rooted as closely to Scripture as they could, they put the dice in the bag, they dumped them out, or they reached in, and the lot fell on matthias and he was numbered with the 11 now if you want to know if i believe that god picked matthias i'm going to tell you yes i do believe god picked matthias do i believe that god used the dice in the bag to decide which one yes i do because that's what he did at times in the old testament Bottom line is, they were doing the best they could with what they had. Remember, Holy Spirit's not there for a couple more days. But I will tell you this, this is the last time in in, in just a a, a few little millimeters, we're going to jump into chapter number two in your Bible. And when the Holy Spirit comes, I can tell you this, there's never recorded in the New Testament again a reason to bring out the holy dice. I do think it would be wrong for you guys to go home and decide whether or not you're going to buy the next house or not by throwing them in the corner. Come on, honey, blow on them. Bring them on. Here's what we need. We want a new house. Don't do that. You know why? Because of what's going to happen in just a few millimeters in chapter number two, and no need for that, but they did what they did. What are we seeing here? We're seeing a group of people who had just heard some things they never believed. How in the world are we going to be witnesses in all these places and we're going to testify to you? We're we're only 120 strong. I hear there's about 500 in Galilee maybe that he uh, uh, revealed himself to. But really, we're... We're fractured group. How are we going to accomplish these things? And what does it mean by power? And God, what are we supposed to do while we wait? Peter says, the best I know to do is just take care of the things that we know are fractured right now to the best of our ability with what God has said. And they chose Matthias. And I think it was the right choice. And now the church is ready to be built on the witness of 12 that Jesus chose, the women and others that were there with them who are ready to go out and communicate the truth about Jesus. And it's gonna get really exciting here in just a few days for us when we get to chapter number two. But but what do we see here? I I wanna just tell you that as I observe some of these things, it's not prescriptive. Luke is not saying do these things there's no imperatives in here that says you need to do this and you need to do that. So, so what do we come away from? Here's some observations that I have of this passage that I see. And I'm going to call these the, the basics of obedience as it applies to, to the church. and That's what they were about to become in just a few days. They were going to be birthed as a brand new organism the community of the Spirit that had in common that thing that is the Holy Spirit keeping them and and, and locking them together. Here's what I see. I see the basic building blocks of obedience being spilled out here. These are things that they were marked by that I wonder if we, probably about a 100 and 1,520 strong in here today. I wonder if we're marked by these things or other things. Here's some observations, these basics of obedience. Here's the first basic I see. Number one is authentic community. These folks were marked by authentic community with unity. If you think about the folks that were mentioned here, these were fishermen and zealots, former tax collectors and and family members who had been pushing against the ministry of Jesus this whole time and the women, and Jesus wasn't there to keep them together. Jesus wasn't there to give them the look whenever they started acting sideways with one another. This is what you get when you leave your kids home by themselves. You want things to go well, but you know the attitude changes when you leave the house. But what I see here, authentic unity folks that shouldn't be wanting to be together from all different walks of life, all different uh, uh, opportunities or lack thereof, and they're all together rallied around one thing, Jesus, authentic unity. I wonder if we're marked at Oasis Church, if you are marked as a portion of Oasis Church by your passion for real unity or are we marked by fragmentation by division or by independence and individuality See, I think a lot of times in the Western church, it's a bunch of independent folks who come together and smile and give church answers and and, and say things that they don't say all week long and sing together and listen together and then go back into their independence without really recognizing that this is about us. And it's about all of us. So that when I'm on vacation and I walk into my mother-in-law's church, it really is about us. Or when we go a little further south and I walk into my mom and dad's church, it really is about us. And when I hang out with folks that may be of a, a, of a different denomination, but they name the name of Jesus Christ crucified and risen in our place and for our sin, it's about us. But how much of us is spent focused on me how much of our time is spent on what divides us rather than on what unifies us I see this basic of obedience being authentic unity is that something you're passionate about real unity the second thing I see here in the basic of obedience is a hunger for prayer did you notice what it says all of these were with one accord, unified, and they were devoting themselves to prayer. Now, I'm not talking about your prayer in your closet. That's awesome. But these folks were marked by prayer together, and they hungered for it. They knew they needed it. I think the Western church talks a lot about prayer. I don't see a lot of it happening. In fact, I don't see a lot of it happening here. And, and I know whose responsibility that is. So tonight we're gonna have some us prayer time at six o'clock. And we're not praying for sickness and we're not praying for you know traveling and things like that. We're, we're praying about God's purpose for this local body The folks who need to be affected by this local body and just by us being obedient. So if you got time tonight, 6 o'clock, we'll be right here praying together. Are we marked by prayer? I think it's a basic of obedience. I see the the third basic of obedience is alignment with Scripture. What was Peter's focus in this little sermonette? It was... Look, God said this, and I think he was not only talking about that then, but this now. And if this now, then I think we've got to align ourselves with this. This one being removed and this one being replaced, and I think that's what's happened to us. And I think we need to align ourselves with God's Word. A basic of obedience. What does God say and how interested am I in aligning myself with what it says? You see, I think the Western church today, I think it's motivated by the knowledge of Scripture. What do we know about Scripture? What can we quote out of Scripture? What can we post about Scripture? What can we say about Scripture? But I think we're very lax in actually aligning ourselves
0: with scripture
1: seems to be like this infant basic of obedience with this little baby church that's about to be birthed so i see unity a hunger for prayer an alignment with scripture and not just knowledge of scripture and then lastly i see a wanting and seeking god's will wanting god's will more than anything else seeking god's will more than anything else The band was going to play that song and you were going to sing. I asked Rhett to just sing it by himself because I wanted those words to kind of resonate with us as we go into this. This this wanting him and nothing else and then seeking him above all else. You see, I think the Western church is full of folks, not just this one. I think the Western church... The, the the civilized world church, I think, is full of wanting and seeking success. What do we gotta do to be successful? Well, who defines what successful is? I think we're made up of folks that are wanting and seeking our own individual pursuits. What do I like? What do I want? What makes me happy? And then ultimately, I think we're a people that's seeking after our own desires. Rather than setting God's will right there, like, like these folks did. They went, God, we got a couple of folks that we think you might would want. But ultimately, we don't want what we want. We want what you want. And I just wonder
0: if this church desires to be marked by a warning of God's will, and a seeking of God's will
1: above all other pursuits. So just in observation of this couple of steps of transition away from Jesus on earth to the Holy Spirit in the body, we see these folks,
0: I believe, reflecting the basics of obedience. Unity, prayer, alignment with scripture,
1: and a seeking of God's will. And the question is simple. Are you marked by these basics of obedience? Is your life marked by this? Maybe your life needs attention in all those, or maybe there's one that that God the Holy Spirit is just pounding on your heart right now going, that's it. That's it. I want you to be unified. You're, you're just contrary. You're independent, or you're, you're just trying to do this thing on your own. I, I want you to walk together with the body. Or maybe he's saying, I, I want you, I know prayer doesn't make sense to you, but I want you to get in it anyway. Because that's where you're going to find strength. Or maybe it is this alignment with Scripture. You know it, but are you doing it?
0: And maybe it is God's will that he's wanting you to want more than what you want.
1: Bottom line is, like Peter in the 20, I don't know your heart, but he does. So I'm going to ask us to pray. And I'm going to ask you to deal with whatever God nails down in your heart and your mind. While we pray, if you'd like to have somebody pray with you, Mike and Tammy are over to the side. They'll be ready to pray with you over here in the, in the prayer corner. They'll also be there afterward. But you can do business right where you're at. But if you, need, uh, if you need some folks to pray with you, we're available. Let's stand together. You just respond where you are based on what God said for you to do, Father. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the faithfulness of these obedient 120. They, they had, um, I know that they were confused, and, and they didn't even have the person of the Holy Spirit to lead them, yet they wanted to be obedient. They, they wanted to be where you wanted them to be. They wanted to be doing what you wanted them doing. And I think they gave us a glimpse of the basics of obedience.
0: So, Father, just in the stillness of this moment, I pray that you will show us what it is that you want us to respond to. God, show us where unity is not our passion. Give us the courage to draw into the body that you've designed for a purpose. God, give us a hunger for prayer. Give us a desire to want to come before you with the expectation that you want to communicate to us. Father, we ask that you'll help us to see where our life does not line up with Scripture. Help us to be obedient. God, I pray that you will give us a want for what you want in this body, for our family, for ourselves. May you and nothing else what we pursue. So God, we ask that you'll move in our heart. We thank you for the day and your word. We look forward to how you're going to use it in the days to come, even today. We look forward to the return of your son who's going to come in the same way that he ascended. It would be just fine with us if that was today. Your will be done in us and through us, for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, our returning king. All voices said, amen.